Book Two, Chapter Six, Part Two of The Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mrs. Derrick and Hilma sat in the back seat of the carryall behind young Vaca. Mrs. Derrick, a little disturbed by such a great concourse of people, frightened at the idea of the killing of so many rabbits, drew back in her place, her young girl eyes troubled and filled with a vague distress. Hilma, very much excited, leaned from the carryall, anxious to see everything, watching for rabbits, asking innumerable questions of Annixter, who rode at her side. The change that had been progressing in Hilma ever since the night of the famous barn dance now seemed to be approaching its climax. First the girl, then the woman, last of all the mother. Conscious dignity, a new element in her character, developed. The shrinking, the timidity of the girl just awakening to the consciousness of sex, passed away from her. The confusion, the troublous complexity of the woman, a mystery even to herself, disappeared. Motherhood dawned. The old simplicity of her maiden days came back to her. It was no longer a simplicity of ignorance, but of supreme knowledge. The simplicity of the perfect, the simplicity of greatness. She looked the world fearlessly in the eyes. At last the confusion of her ideas, like frightened birds, resettling, adjusted itself, and she emerged from the trouble calm, serene, entering into her divine right, like a queen into the rule of a realm of perpetual peace. And with this, with the knowledge that the crown hung poised above her head, there came upon Hilma a gentleness, infinitely beautiful, infinitely pathetic, a sweetness that touched all who came near her with the softness of a caress. She moved, surrounded by an invisible atmosphere of love. Love was in her wide-opened brown eyes. Love, the dim reflection of that descending crown poised over her head, radiated in a faint luster from her dark, thick hair. Around her beautiful neck, sloping to her shoulders with full, graceful curves, love lay encircled like a necklace. Love that was beyond words, sweet, breathed from her parted lips. From her white, large arms downward to her pink fingertips, love, an invisible electric fluid, disengaged itself, subtle, alluring. In the velvety huskiness of her voice, love vibrated like a note of unknown music. Annixter, her uncouth, rugged husband, living in this influence of a wife, who was also a mother, at all hours touched to the quick by this sense of nobility, of gentleness, and of love. The instincts of a father already clutching and tugging at his heart was trembling on the verge of a mighty transformation. The hardness and inhumanity of the man was fast breaking up. One night, returning late to the ranch house after a compulsory visit to the city, he had come upon Hilma asleep. He had never forgotten that night. A realization of his boundless happiness in this love he gave and received, the thought that Hilma trusted him, a knowledge of his own unworthiness, a vast and humble thankfulness that his God had chosen him of all men for this great joy, had brought him to his knees for the first time in all his troubled, restless life of combat and aggression. He prayed, he knew not what, vague words, wordless thoughts, resolving fiercely to do right, to make some return for God's gift thus placed within his hands. Where once Annixter had thought only of himself, he now thought only of Hilma. The time when this thought of another should broaden and widen into thoughts of others 
was yet to come, but already it had expanded to include the unborn child. Already, as in the case of Mrs. Dyke, it had broadened to enfold another child and another mother, bound to him by no ties other than those of humanity and pity. In time, starting from this point, it would reach out more and more, till it should take in all men and all women, and the intolerant, selfish man, while retaining all of his native strength, should become tolerant and generous, kind and forgiving. For the moment, however, the two natures struggled within him. A fight was to be fought, one more, the last, the fiercest, the attack of the enemy who menaced his very home and hearth, was to be resisted. Then peace attained, arrested development would once more proceed. Hilma looked from the carryall, scanning the open plain in front of the advancing line of the drive. "'Where are the rabbits?' she asked of Annixter. "'I don't see any at all.' "'Ah, they're way ahead of us yet,' he said. "'Here, take the glasses.' He passed her his field glasses, and she adjusted them. "'Oh, yes,' she cried. "'I see. I see five or six, but, oh, so far off.' "'The beggars run way ahead at first. "'I should say so. See them run, little specks. Every now and then they sit up their ears straight up in the air.' "'Here, look, Hilma, there goes one close by.' From out of the ground, apparently, some twenty yards distant, a great jack sprang into view, bounding away with tremendous leaps, his black-tipped ears erect. He disappeared, his grey body losing itself against the grey of the ground. "'Oh, he's a big fellow.' "'Hey, another yonder.' "'Yes, yes, oh, look, look at him run.' From off the surface of the ground, at first apparently empty of all life and seemingly unable to afford hiding place for so much as a field mouse, jackrabbits started up at every moment as the line went forward. At first they appeared singly and at long intervals, then in twos and threes as the drive continued to advance. They leaped across the plain and stopped in the distance, sitting up with straight ears, then ran on again, were joined by others, sank down flush to the soil, their ears flattened, started up again, ran to the side, turned back once more, darted away with incredible swiftness, and were lost to view only to be replaced by a score of others. Gradually the number of jacks to be seen over the expanse of stubble in front of the line of teams increased. Their antics were infinite. No two acted precisely alike. Some lay stubbornly close in a little depression between two clods, till the horses' hooves were all but upon them, then sprang out from their hiding place at the last second. Others ran forward, but a few yards at a time, refusing to take flight, scenting a greater danger before them than behind. Still others, forced up at the last moment, doubled with lightning alacrity in their tracks, turning back to scuttle between the teams, taking desperate chances. As often as this occurred, it was the signal for a great uproar. Don't let him get through. Don't let him get through. Look out for him. There he goes. Horns were blown, bells rung, tin pans clamorously beaten. Either the jack escaped, or, confused by the noise, darted back again, fleeing away as if his life depended on the issue of the instant. Once, even, a bewildered rabbit jumped fair into Mrs. Derrick's lap as she sat in the carryall, and was out again like a flash. Poor frightened thing she exclaimed, and for a long time afterward she retained upon her knees the sensation of the four little paws quivering with excitement and the feel of the trembling furry body, 
with its wildly beating heart pressed against her own. By noon, the number of rabbits discernible by Annixter's field glasses on ahead was far into the thousands. What seemed to be ground resolved itself when seen through the glasses into a maze of small moving bodies, leaping, ducking, doubling, running back and forth, a wilderness of agitated ears, white tails, and twinkling legs. The outside wings of the curved line of vehicles began to draw in a little. Osterman's ranch was left behind. The drive continued on over onto Quien Sabe. As the day advanced, the rabbits, singularly enough, became less wild. When flushed, they no longer ran so far nor so fast, limping off instead a few feet at a time and crouching down, their ears close upon their backs. Thus it was that by degrees the teams began to close up on the main herd. At every instant the numbers increased. It was no longer thousands. It was tens of thousands. The earth was alive with rabbits. Denser and denser grew the throng. In all directions nothing was to be seen but the loose mass of the moving jacks. The horns of the crescent of teams began to contract. Far off the corral came into sight. The disintegrated mass of rabbits commenced, as it were, to solidify, to coagulate. At first each jack was some three feet distant from its nearest neighbor, but this space diminished to two feet, then to one, then to but a few inches. The rabbits began leaping over one another. Then the strange scene defined itself. It was no longer a herd covering the earth. It was a sea, whipped into confusion, tossing incessantly, leaping, falling, agitated by unseen forces. At times the unexpected tameness of the rabbits all at once vanished. Throughout certain portions of the herd eddies of terror abruptly burst forth. A panic spread. Then there would ensue a blind, wild rushing together of thousands of crowded bodies, and a furious scrambling over backs till the scuffing thud of innumerable feet over the earth rose to a reverberating murmur as of distant thunder, here and there pierced by the strange, wild cry of the rabbit in distress. The line of vehicles was halted. To go forward now meant to trample the rabbits underfoot. The drive came to a standstill while the herd entered the corral. This took time, for the rabbits were by now too crowded to run. However, like an open sluice-gate, the extending flanks of the entrance of the corral slowly engulfed the herd. The mass, packed tight as ever, by degrees diminished, precisely as a pool of water when a dam is opened. The last stragglers went in with a rush, and the gate was dropped. "'Come, just have a look in here,' called Annixter. Hilma, descending from the carryall and joined by Presley and Harron, approached and looked over the high board fence. Oh, did you ever see anything like that? she exclaimed. The corral, a really large enclosure, had proved all too small for the number of rabbits collected by the drive. Inside it was a living, moving, leaping, breathing, twisting mass. The rabbits were packed two, three, and four feet deep. They were in constant movement, those beneath struggling to the top, those on top sinking and disappearing below their fellows. All wildness, all fear of man seemed to have entirely disappeared. Men and boys, reaching over the sides of the corral, picked up a jack in each hand, holding them by the ears, while two reporters from San Francisco papers took photographs of the scene. The noise made by the tens of thousands of moving bodies was as the noise of wind in a forest. 
while from the hot and sweating mass there rose a strange odor, penetrating, ammoniacal, savoring of wild life. On signal the killing began. Dogs that had been brought there for that purpose, when let into the corral, refused, as had been half expected, to do the work. They snuffed curiously at the pile, then backed off, disturbed, perplexed. But the men and boys, Portuguese for the most part, were more eager. Annixter drew Hilma away, and indeed most of the people set about uh, the barbecue at once. In the corral, however, the killing went forward. Armed with a club in each hand, the young fellows from Guadalajara and Bonneville and the farm boys from the ranches leaped over the rails of the corral. They walked unsteadily upon the myriad of crowding bodies underfoot, or, as space was cleared, sank almost waist-deep into the mass that leaped and squirmed about them. Blindly, furiously, they struck and struck. The Anglo-Saxon spectators round about drew back in disgust, but the hot, degenerated blood of Portuguese, Mexican, and mixed Spaniard boiled up in excitement at this wholesale slaughter. But only a few of the participants of the drive cared to look on. All the guests betook themselves some quarter of a mile further on into the hills. The picnic and barbecue were to be held around the spring where Broderson Creek took its rise. Already two entire beeves were roasting there. Teams were hitched, saddles removed, and men, women, and children, a great throng, spread out under the shade of the live oaks. A vast, confused clamor rose in the air, a babel of talk, a clatter of tin plates, of knives and forks. Bottles were uncorked, napkins and oilcloths spread over the ground. The men lit pipes and cigars. The women seized the occasion to nurse their babies. Osterman, ubiquitous as ever, resplendent in his boots and English riding breeches, moved about between the groups, keeping up an endless flow of talk, cracking jokes, winking, nudging, gesturing, putting his tongue in his cheek, never at a loss for a reply, playing the goat. Oh, that Joshua Osterman, always at his monkey shines. <laughs> but a good fellow for all that, too. Brainy, too. <laughs> Nothing stuck up about him, either, like uh, Magnus Derrick. Everything all right, Buck? inquired Osterman, coming up to where Annixter, Hillman, and Mrs. Derrick were sitting down to their lunch. Yes, yes, everything right, but uh, we've no corkscrew. No screw cork, no scarecrow. Here you are and he drew from his pocket a silver-plated jackknife with a corkscrew attachment. Harron and Presley came up, bearing between them a great smoking roasted portion of beef just off the fire. Hilma hastened to put forward a huge china platter. Osterman had a joke to crack with the two boys, a joke that was rather broad, but as he turned about, the words almost on his lips, his glance fell upon Hilma herself, whom he had not seen for more than two months. She had handed Presley the platter, and was now sitting with her back against the tree between two bowls of the roots. The position was a little elevated, and the supporting roots on either side of her were like the arms of a great chair, a chair of state. She sat thus, as on a throne, raised above the rest, the radiance of the unseen crown of motherhood glowing from her forehead, the beauty of the perfect woman surrounding her like a glory and the josh died away on Osterman's lips, and unconsciously and swiftly he bared his head. Something was passing there in the air about him that he did not understand, something, however, that imposed reverence and profound respect. 
For the first time in his life, embarrassment seized upon him, upon this joker, this wearer of clothes, this teller of funny stories, with his large red ears, bald head, and comic actor's face. He stammered confusedly and took himself away, for the moment abstracted, serious, lost in thought. By now everyone was eating. It was the feeding of the people, elemental, gross, a great appeasing of appetite, an enormous quenching of thirst. Quarters of beef, roasts, ribs, shoulders, haunches were consumed. Loaves of bread by the thousands disappeared. Whole barrels of wine went down the dry and dusty throats of the multitude. Conversation lagged while the people ate, while hunger was appeased. Everybody had their fill. One ate for the sake of eating, resolved that there should be nothing left, considering it a matter of pride to exhibit a clean plate. End of Book Two, Chapter Six, Part Two